Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. Well, good morning again, everyone. We, we're on week 12 of church history. Yeah. So we will actually finish next week, so 13 weeks. When I did a version of this about 10, 11 years ago, they only got 12 weeks, so you guys get an extra, extra week. Bonus. Yeah. So let me start off today on church history. December 3rd, 1557, under the leadership of John Knox, Protestants in Scotland signed their first covenant in Edinburgh, uniting Presbyterians under the name Congregation of the Lord. Last week, we had, uh, I had talked about theological liberalism, and I left it on a cliffhanger, all the uh, issues that the church was dealing with in the 19th century, how science was being uh, misused to actually supplant the authority of the scriptures instead of revealing God's creation. I looked at something called higher criticism, where scholars were trying to get to the true text behind the uh, scriptures. Um, because they had a presupposition that there can be no supernatural elements in the world, and therefore if there are supernatural elements in the text, we need to get rid of them because they're untrue. And then I ended with theological liberalism, which dealt with that Christianity is uh, more of an experience instead of a set of doctrines and historical reality that grounds our faith. And through that experience, they also thought that we had to do good in society, um, do just things to help the poor and etc., which are all good things, but they were not grounded in um, being saved by Christ, and therefore that would be a proper response. They thought that this is what we should do to better society, etc. And so I left it there, and so today we will look at um, how the church uh, responded to theological liberalism. So before I begin, could someone open us up in a word of prayer, please? Father, thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for this season of the year. We look forward to uh, our celebration of Christmas as it rolls around the year off. Remember the importance of your coming to earth and so forth. Thank you for this time. Thank you for who's uh, helped us understand some of the uh, tenets of history and Christian and Christianity. And we just look forward to another time together. Thank you for the stage. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So, <clears throat> one of the ways that the, there we go, the church responded was what's termed fundamentalism. So, before you <laughs> think of the baggage associated with this term, that baggage hasn't quite come yet at this time in history. And that baggage is, you know, no alcohol, no movies, no dancing, those kind of things. But initially, this was a movement really started to um, deal with uh, addressing liberalism. Um, it arose in American and British Protestantism in the late 19th and early 20th century. Some of uh, large figures that were part of the movement included B.B. Warfield, uh, Machen, who I'll talk about in a minute, and D.L. Moody. Their name comes from a document called The Fundamentals, which was a 12-volume set of essays designed to combat liberal theology. And the movement actually uh, started right before World War I, but really grew after World War I. 
Um, and so we look at those documents now. So fundamentals, published between 1910 and 1916, they were a set of 90 essays contained in 12 volumes. Uh, eventually they'd be republished in uh, four volumes, I think. And they draw from dozens of authors, and their point was to defend the essence, the fundamentals of Christian Christianity against liberalism. So basically they're using the term the basics. You know, when you play sports, you need to learn the fundamentals, the basics, and those are the building blocks of everything else. And so they're trying to say these are the basics of Christianity, and they are a reaction to liberalism, which are denying the basics of Christianity. Um, as I said before, the, these works, they're not guilty of the extremism that would come later, the, um, the uh, pharisaical nature that came out of this movement where I'm saying, you know, you can't dance, you can't sing, you can't, you know, go to movies, etc. no smoking, no drinking, any of that stuff. Their main point was to uh, or reaffirm historic Christian doctrine. And so some of the topics they covered up there, um, they gave an overview of the Bible. They addressed the inspiration and in the inerrancy of the scriptures. They argue against liberalism and higher criticism. And they go through the basics of the Christian faith. And they also make denunciations of false churches. And they said that um, churches that held to theological liberalism were actually false churches. And I'll develop that a little more. Um, and so a little bit of their background, how they came about. Um, as I said, they were written up to the years leading to World War I. Um, at this time, Germany was the uh, intellectual center, really, of the world. Uh, modern physics was emerging in the hands of Germans, such as Einstein and Heisenberg. A new science of psychology was being promoted by Sigmund Freud. And before the final volume of the fundamentals was complete, and uh, World War I would start. So Germany was the main antagonist there. Um, out of Germany was coming a steady stream of influential liberal thought, and then much of this was under the banner of higher criticism. Um, this again brought into the question of core doctrine. What was, what was Christianity? What is its essence? And so um, the fundamentals in historical context are a reactionary document. So as often it would happen in the church, issues would come up and the church would address it, usually reactionary. Um, the 90 essays were written by a range of authors, mainly from the United States, but you did have a large group from Canada and also Britain. Most are theologians, most have higher degrees, and most are men, but there is one, at least one woman author. The essays are not arranged in any particular order because they are more written as a series of tracks addressing problems, and then they're all combined together in, in volumes. And some of the topics are listed there. So this was a united effort to deal with theological liberalism from the conservative end. And then it evolved into what we kind of associate with fundamentalism today. They became more separatist in nature. They kind of started to withdraw from the culture. Um, they had no tolerance for any compromise, became defined more by non-essential morals than doctrines. They began to left, leave universities and they started their own schools. So, any thoughts on what fundamentalism became? Okay. Were, were these coming out of seminaries? Some of them, yes. Most, 
Mostly, um, most of they were written by major figures who were also part of seminaries, but yeah, some would come from seminaries. Them, so we know who wrote them. Oh yeah, we have a list of who they are. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think one of the outcomes was, uh, I don't know when Bob Jones University started, but that would have been one of the fundamental schools that became very important in fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. I don't know when that started. But yeah, that, that would define how we view fundamentalism today. That's a good example of. Yeah. It seems to me like you were talking about what, what fundamentalism became. It seems to me at this point when it began that it had more of an impact than later on. They kind of gave up their impact on culture a little bit as it became more separatist. It, would that be true? I'm not sure that they gave up. I would think... No, they didn't give up, but I mean, it, it didn't have the impact that they probably... Oh, it, it did, actually. So okay. Machen, right. we'll talk about Machen in, okay. in a minute. There were members of the conservative evangelical movement who were also part of the fundamental movement. But later, they, the evangelicals would separate themselves from the fundamentals because they began to become separatist in nature. And the evangelicals wanted to still engage the culture. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we've actually seen this story before. In one sense, there are some similar themes, although not 100% uh, in line. But in the early church, we had the monks, and they fled to go into the desert, and they stopped engaging with the culture, which was a reaction to the church becoming imperialized because Constantine now was, you know, the, the church and the state were now intertwined. And so the monks reacted against that and fled, not fled, but felt that the best way that they could practice their Christianity, preserve it, and pass it down was to be separate. And so the fundamentals over time, started to adopt the same mindset. Are those the desert, uh, desert monks. The desert monks Some of the desert fathers, yes. Desert fathers. Yeah. Um, and so the fundamentalists, they want to separate themselves from culture. And what do the liberals do in res with respect to the culture? They influence the culture in a way that was not theologically sound. Mm -hmm. they, I guess they integrated, I guess they assimilated into the culture. Yeah, what were you saying? They really pushed themselves onto the culture. Pushed themselves onto the culture? Yeah. Steve? Well, what's going on after World War One? allegedly the war to end all wars, yeah. uh, the Roaring Twenties were happening, there was a lot of, like, live for today, for tomorrow you may die, the world was, it seemed like it was entering a new age of amazing growth and um, but I would imagine that the liberals were probably like um, we need to bring God into this but we're allowing a lot of the culture to come into it and I would imagine I just looked at Bob Jones was found in 27 27 okay yeah so that's all right so it was probably a reaction a lot of action reaction to the culture yeah the way I would put it is uh, hopefully it's not an oversimplification, but the liberals capitulated to the culture, where the fundamentalists try to separate from the culture. And, you know, Christ calls us to be in the world, but not of it. And there's that tension. And now you see that tension throughout uh, 
church history, how, how does the church uh, maintain its doctrinal fidelity, its moral character, but also preach the gospel without being influenced by the culture? How does it speak into the culture without being capitulated by the culture? So there's that tension. And so that's kind of the underlying tension behind this going on. And so the, um, the academics of the 19th century would begin to influence the culture, and the church had some minor responses through that um, in the academic world, but uh, the culture itself began to change. And then finally there becomes a breaking point where uh, conservative people, they, they realize the danger that is going on here, and they write these tracts, and they're trying to defend the doctrines of the faith, and then they also slip into the other extreme error eventually. And so, uh, whoa, that was weird. Um, so we've, we've got this battle going on, and uh, this battle eventually would become termed the fundamentalist modernist controversy because the liberals held to modern uh, thought and, and, and theology. And so, one major famous figure from that period that we're going to look at is J. Gresham Machen. Uh, big items he's known for, he's the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary and the founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church denomination. So let me get through Machen. He was born on July 28, 1881 in Baltimore. His mother was a Presbyterian and taught Machen the Westminster Shorter Catechism from an early age, and the family attended Franklin Street Presbyterian Church. In 1898, the 70-year-old Machen began studying at John Hopkins University for his undergrad, and he performed sufficiently well to gain a scholarship. He majored in classics. In 1902, Machen opted to study theology at Princeton Seminary, while simultaneously studying a Master of Arts in Philosophy at Princeton University. So the College of New Jersey, which uh, Jonathan Edwards was a president of, and then Samuel Davies, who I had mentioned, eventually became Princeton University. From there, some people realized we actually needed a training center for ministers, and out of Princeton University came Princeton Theological Seminary. They're not exactly the same, although they have historical connections. And I'll talk a little bit more about Princeton uh, Seminary in a few minutes. Uh, Machen also pursued theological studies in Germany. So what do you think he was exposed to? Yeah. So he had first-hand experience with theological liberalism. In a letter to his father, he admitted being thrown into confusion about his faith because of the liberalism taught by the Germans. His time in Germany and his engagement with modernist theologians led him to reject the movement and embrace conservative reform theology more firmly than before. In 1906, uh, Machen joined Princeton Seminary as an instructor in the New Testament. Among his Princeton influences was B.B. Warfield. You guys know that name? Yeah. All right. Whom he described as the greatest man he had ever met. Warfield maintained the correct, that correct doctrine was the primary means by which Christians influenced the surrounding culture. And he emphasized a high view of Scripture and the defense of supernaturalism. In 1914, Machen was ordained and the next year he became the assistant professor of New Testament at Princeton Seminary. Machen did not serve conventionally during World War I, but went to France with the YMCA to do volunteer work near the front. Though not a combatant, he witnessed firsthand 
the devastations of modern warfare. After returning from Europe in 1918, Machen continued his work as a New Testament scholar at Princeton. During this period, he would gain a reputation as one of the few true scholars who was able to debate, debate the growing prevalence of modernist theology whilst maintaining an evangelical stance. So Princeton was the historically classic reformed bulwark seminary. And now liberalism is creeping into Princeton. Uh, his two major works are up there, The Origin of Paul's Religion, and the second one, Christianity and Liberalism. The first one is perhaps Machen's best-known scholarly work. This book was a successful attempt at critiquing the modernist belief that Paul's religion was based mainly upon Greek philosophy. It was entirely different to the religion of Christ. So some of the, the scholars would say... Um, the liberal scholars would say that, that Paul's message is actually different from Christ's because we have to get behind the text to actually find Christ's message. And so there was debate among that, and the liberals and Machen said, no, Jesus and Paul are saying the same things. His other work, which is more commonly known, uh, would critique theological modernism, uh, Christianity and liberalism. The book compared conservative and Protestant Christianity to the rising popularity of modernist theology. He concluded that the chief modern rival of Christianity is liberalism. This is a republication of this work 100 years ago. So this work was published 100 years ago. In the work, he defends the core doctrines of Christianity. I'm not sure if he was influenced by the fundamentals, but there are very uh, similar uh, topics and themes being addressed in here. And I'll pass this around. You can look at the table of contents. But Machen basically said that <clears throat> theological liberalism, Christian liberalism, and Orthodox Christianity, they are not two different aspects of Christianity, but they're actually two different religions. Why do you think he said that? The presuppositions are so different that the whole, the view of the world and the relationship between God and humanity and, and the work of Christ are, are, are so fundamentally different that even if some of the words are the same, they're, they're just different ways of, of approaching life in the world. From a, I know they'll try to, you go to uh, liberal churches, you look in the air, they can like quote, like we talked earlier this semester about the Nicene Creeds, they, they can quote it, but they don't actually believe it. So if you don't even hold to that as it was intended, that's not the same religion. Yeah, I think Alan hit it on the head there. They use the same words, but they have different meanings. Uh, in their sense, Christ is not, he's not really divine. If he's not divine, then he can't really save us. And so you have really two different religions. So Machen would show that, and some people, be, and we had, I think, I mean, I've heard this before, and I'm trying to think of a specific example, but people have used the same terms for Jesus, and we assume that they mean the same thing. So, for example, Mormons, they, they say the word Jesus, they, they use the word, but who Jesus is to them is not who Jesus is to Orthodox Christianity. And so just because the same terms and words are used does not mean the meanings are the same. And that's what Machen was trying to point out in this work. 
Machen obviously was in the conservative theological camp within the Presbyterian Church, so the Presbyterian Church itself would also uh, begin to battle liberalism. Um, <clears throat> however, Machen was not able to fully embrace the fundamentalist movement, the little bit of the later one. He believed that Reformed theology was the most biblical form of Christian belief, a theology that was generally missing from fundamentalism at the time. Moreover, Machen's scholarly work and ability to engage with modernist theology was at odds with fundamentalism's anti-intellectual attitude. So I always find that interesting. So fundamentalism, they started with defining the core doctrines, and then one of their tenets became um, anti-intellectual. They kind of withdrew from science and teaching and that, and that stuff. And, Ma and Machen says, well, no, that's, that's not correct. I mean, all truth is God's truth, so why wouldn't we continue to study? Um, and here's, here's how he expresses his views in a letter to the Board of Trustees of Bryan Memorial University. He, he was refusing their offer to make him president. Machen wrote, I never call myself a fundamentalist. There is indeed no inherent objection to the term, and if disjunction, disjunction is between fundamentalism and modernism, then I am willing to call myself a fundamentalist of the most pronounced type. But after all, what I prefer to call myself is not a fundamentalist, but a Calvinist, that is, an inherent to the Reformed faith. As such, I regard myself as standing in the great central current of the church's life, the current which flows down from the Word of God through Augustine and Calvin, which has found noteworthy expression in America in the great tradition represented by Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield and the other representatives of the Princeton School. Uh, Machen saw himself as carrying on the, the Reformed tradition. He said fundamentalism, while it has some uh, truth to it, he doesn't think it has all the truth and it's probably not the best form of truth, and so he wouldn't call himself a fundamentalist. So one of his uh, claim to fame is the founding of Westminster Seminary. The General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, uh, by the way, when I say Presbyterian Church, this is the Northern Presbyterian Church in history at this time. There was also a Southern Presbyterian Church at this time. And I think the split, I can't remember, this always gets very confusing for me. They had split, I know at the Civil War, um, partly over the issue of slavery. And then I can't remember if they had reemerged again reunited again and then split again, I can't remember. But there, at this time, there's a Northern Presbyterian Church and a Southern Presbyterian Church, and I'm only talking about the Northern Presbyterian Church right now. I thought Westminster was in Philadelphia. It is. Oh, you said California. No, there's, did I? There is one in California. I thought I said Philadelphia. But it's not the one he founded. No, but it was a, it, it's an offshoot from that. And actually, uh, Nathan Luswick has attended there, and he's got one or two classes left to finish up. So, The General Assembly in 1910 of the Presbyterian Church in 1916 and again in 1923 declared that every candidate seeking to be, to be ordained in the Presbyterian Church ought to be able to affirm five points. They're up there. The inerrancy of the Scriptures, the virgin birth, and the deity of Christ, doctrine of substitutionary atonement, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and the authenticity of Christ's miracles. And so we get some controversy coming in, starting in May 1922 in the Presbyterian Church. A visiting ba Baptist minister, his name was Harry Emerson Fosdick, preached a sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Preached it at First Presbyterian Church in New York City. 
In this sermon, Fosdick presented the liberals in both the Presbyterian and Baptist denominations as sincere evangelical Christians who are struggling to reconcile new discoveries in history, science, and religion with the Christian faith. Fundamentalists, on the other hand, were cast as intolerant conservatives who refused to deal with these new discoveries and had arbitrarily drawn the line as to what was off-limits in religious discussion. Many people, Fosdick argued, simply found it impossible to accept the virgin birth of Christ, the doctrine of the atonement, or the literal second coming of Christ in light of modern science. Given the different points of view within the church, only tolerance and liberty could allow for these different perspectives to coexist in the church. That's what Fosdick is talking about in the sermon. He's basically saying, let's not fight. We're all on the same team. Let's have unity. The General Assembly's response to the controversy rising out of Emerson Fosdick's sermon was to reaffirm the five articles. And then the liberals' response was to write the Auburn Affirmation. The Auburn Affirmation has six sections that can be summarized as the Bible is not inerrant. Uh, let me go quickly through this. Um, the General Assembly has no power to dictate doctrine to the presbytery. So that's, that's not a doctrinal thing. That's an ecclesiastical thing. Um, the General Assembly's condemnation of those asserting doctrines contrary to the standards of the Presbyterian Church circumvented due process. So that's another ecclesiastical argument. None of the five essential doctrines, so none of these five essential doctrines should be used as tests of ordination. Alternated theories of these doctrines are permissible. Liberty of thought and teaching within the bounds of evangelical Christianity is necessary. Division is deplored. Unity and freedom are commended. Any thoughts on those? <laughs> if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. That's good. Explains so much. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, on the surface, the last statement is that's good but unity and what right it, they're very talking like ecumenism yeah. a little bit yeah. yeah it's very relative relativistic mm -hmm. i mean while i agree that there are standards that need to be maintained if there's one thing i've absorbed through this series is that we're really good at condemning the other side as being absolutely and unequivocally wrong, breaking away, and then persecuting them to the fullest extent humanly possible. So while I don't like the thrust of this, I find myself somewhat in sympathy with the last statement, especially in the context of church history. Okay. But in the context of this, the people who wrote the Auburn Affirmation denied those five points. Yeah, I can't get behind that, but... I've been here for all those sessions. <laughs> so Tim, other, other um, congregations, other, um, like the Unitarians and the Methodists and the Baptists, they're all, are they also going through similar machinations? The, the, yes, the other denominations would eventually go through the same battle. Okay. Uh, it's really, I think it mostly started with the Presbyterian Church. And I think because people are willing to push back. And we'll, so we'll, we'll look at that in a minute. Cindy? Yeah, my mom, who was born in 23, she remembers the time oh, wow. where you know, Presbyterians were considered to be getting kind of liberal, and the Methodists were the ones that were really solid and, and, and evangelical and you know, really 
And so it, it's interesting when you go back to that time period how you know, now we, we would say, yes, there are, there are liberal versions of both denominations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would affect other denominations after, after this. So we're still on the looking at how Westminster was founded. The, the assembly reaffirmed those five points. The Auburn Affirmation said, no, we have these six counterpoints. There were a number, number of fundamentalist modernist battles uh, ensued over the following general assemblies. So this is 1923. And then we get all the way to 1929. The general assembly voted to reorganize Princeton Seminary and to make it less conservative. So we need to take a step back and look at what was Princeton Seminary. What was its purpose? What was its history? So Princeton Seminary was founded in 1812. Its purpose was to provide theological training of future Presbyterian ministers of the Northern Presbyterian Church. The prominent faculty included Charles Hodge, A.A. Hodge, B.B. Warfield, Gerhardus Voss, Lorraine Bettner, James Montgomery Voice, John Murray, and eventually Machen. Princeton Seminary came to stand for Calvinist Presbyterian doctrine, which came to be known as Princeton Theology. If you want a really, really good history of Princeton Seminary, this is volume one of two. Um, but it goes through uh, its principles, its uh, philosophy of education, its primary faculty, some of the struggles to deal with, you know, fundraising, uh, staying firm and uh, having fidelity to the scriptures. And it's a really good read, two volumes though. But it goes from 1812 to 1929, because 1929 is considered the year when Princeton Seminary fell, basically. It, it, it stopped being the conservative, reformed uh, seminary because of what I'm talking about now. So in 1929, the J.A. voted to reorganize Princeton Seminary. Um, it was the only seminary in 1929 defending orthodoxy among the older theological institutions in the English-speaking world. Part of the reorganization is that the General Assembly in 1929 voted to recognize and appointed two of the Auburn Affirmation signatories as trustees. So two gentlemen who signed on the Auburn Affirmation, which is that liberal document, were now appointed as trustees to the seminary. Of course, they're going to have major influence over what is taught at that seminary. So Machen and some colleagues withdrew and set up Westminster Theological Seminary in 1929 to continue old school theology. And then Westminster Seminary, California would come later, which is a branch. And then eventually it, it became its own independent seminary. The other thing that Machen is known for is founding OPC, the OP denomination. In 1933, Machen became concerned about liberalism tolerated by Presbyterians on the mission field. And so he formed an independent mission board. The next Presbyterian General Assembly reaffirmed that independent mission boards were unconstitutional. Now, I was trying to do quick research on this, and I'm still not 100% sure, but it seems like Machen may have been out of bounds constitutionally in forming an independent mission board. Um, by that, I mean that there are rules and operating procedures of the assembly and through, through the, the committees and commissions. And I think Mason just said, you're not holding to the scriptures. Forget this. I'm doing my own thing. I, I think. I hope that's not a mis mischaracterization of it. 
but I couldn't find anything to the contrary. Uh, the General Assembly, they said the Machen is out of bounds. When Machen replied that his, his, the, their actions were illegal and he would not shut down the independent mission board. The Presbytery brought charges against Machen, including violation of his ordination vows and renouncing the authority of the church. A trial was held in March 1935. He was convicted and suspended from the ministry. Eight ministers, including Machen, were tried in the General Assembly of 1936. They were convicted and removed from the ministry. So he was suspended. Then the following General Assembly, he was now removed. Machen and others withdrew from the Northern Presbyterian Church, then formed a new denomination, the Presbyterian Church of America. That's what it was initially called. Later forced to change his name to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 1939. And so all this, Machen is, he's involved in what has been termed the uh, fundamentalist modernist controversy. It started in the PCUSA, but eventually would move on to every Protestant denomination in the United States. By the end of the 1930s, proponents of theological liberalism were in control of all mainline Protestant seminaries, publishing houses, and denominational hierarchies in the United States. More conservative Christians withdrew from the mainstream founding their own publishing houses, so Zondervan, you guys heard of that publisher, uh, universities such as, such as Biola, and seminaries such as Dallas Theological Seminary and Fuller Theological Seminary. And this would remain the state of affairs until about the 1970s. So Machen decided to honor some speaking engagements he had in North Dakota in December of 1936, but he got really sick. And then eventually he was hospitalized with pneumonia and he died on January 1st, 1937, at the age of 56. Just before his death, he dictated a telegram to longtime friend and colleague John Murray. And that is the grandfather of one of our college students here, Josh Murray. Um, here's what it read. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. What do you guys think of his statement? What does he mean, no hope without it? In, in the act of obedience of Christ, we're talking about his, um, his death on the cross. Partly, yes. I mean, he all, he I guess I should define. I mean, Let me define terms. So yeah. I should have done that first. I apologize. Theologians make a distinction between the active and passive obedience of Christ, although it's, it's just a distinction for uh, helpfulness. The active obedience of Christ is Christ fulfilling the law in his life. The passive obedience is him receiving the punishment. Okay, so now knowing that, what do you think of Machen's statement? If he didn't fulfill the law and obedience in his life, he would not have been a worthy sacrifice to die on the cross and have that passive mm -hmm. obedience. Mm -hmm. And without that, we have no hope. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So one of the things I see here is that theological liberalism did not care about orthodox doctrine. And Machen is saying his hope is placed in Christ, but he's forming it in, the, in a doctrinal statement. That's how he thinks. So doctrine is important. Doctrine... Uh, we. We must renew our minds, as Romans says. Um, we look to the scriptures to renew our minds, which renews our hearts, which changes how we um, 
behave towards people and behave towards, towards God. Doctrine is not something out there just to study. It's part of forming us. And it's also part of forming the church and sustaining the church and passing down <clears throat> what was delivered to the apostles. And so that's why Machen was so adamant to defend Orthodox Christianity. Did he go about forming Westminster and the OPE the right way? I'm not sure. But he was adamant that there needs to be a, a training center for correct doctrine and a denominational a dom, denomination adhering to the Reformed faith. Could he have done it another way? Probably. Was he, from what I understand, he was kind of bullheaded, um, but he was uh, adamant to uh, affirm historical Orthodox Christianity in light of theological liberalism. So he would come out, was termed the fundamentalist, modernist controversy. Uh, the main line now would basically take charge of the big things. There were conservatives who would start their own things, and then that would be, kind of be the status quo until about the 70s. Uh, I think I'm going to stop there. I was going to start on how the PCA got founded, but I don't have time to do that. So I wanna, I'll end there with Machen's quote. Um, Christ, <clears throat> Christ imputes his his obedient obedience to all of us. Um, without Christ living a righteous life and then dying, uh, we have no hope for salvation. We have no hope um, for living with God in eternity. And so Machen recognized that in spite of his flaws. He also had, if you read him, he had some uh, racist tendencies. He, he was for segregation. Uh, he did not there was a B.B. Warfield tried to get a uh, black student into Princeton Seminary, and Machen was kind of appalled at that. Um, but I don't excuse that, and that's something that Christ paid for. Um, but Christ, or, yeah, Christ still uses flawed men and women to continue to build his church. And Westminster Theological Seminary has produced ministers in this denomination, has produced... Uh, disciples in this denomination. Um, the OP is a faithful denomination to this day. The PCA is in, uh, in agreement with them, and we do some work with them. Um, they are a sister church, even though they're a different denomination. And they are the north, technically, the, historically, the northern Presbyterian church. Uh, we do have an OP. There is an OP plant down here on the peninsula who, um, uh, who I know and I'm friends with. Uh, Nate Luswick is friends with as well, and they're uh, their children go to Cullen's uh, homeschool co-op. So they're a faithful denomination, and that comes out of Machen's uh, convictions to hold to Orthodox uh, Christianity. So a flawed man, but uh, God uses bad people to you know, do good things and build his church. All right, so I will stop there. And uh, next week, I will go over the founding of the PCA. Uh, I will cover Pentecostalism. We will catch up with the Roman church, and then we will look at uh, what scholars think is happening. Uh, it's kind of funny to look forward to, to guess what church history will be looking into the future, but scholars will look at kind of what's happening to the church today. And then I will quickly end with uh, a brief history of this congregation, and that'll wrap up our series for week 13. So let me pray and we'll dismiss. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for... Uh, allowing me to share the history of your church. I thank you for the men and women you place throughout history, even flawed men. Lord, we thank 
We're thankful for Machen's conviction to the scriptures and Reformed theology. Um, we're thankful that good came out of his willingness to fight and stand up for what you have delivered to us. We're thankful that we do have the scriptures that encourage us, guide us, and tell us how you love us and how you have died for us. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to them, that we would not capitulate to the culture, but we would not, um, not continue to address and speak to the culture with the gospel. Help us to remember that and fight against those two extremes and walk that tightrope of dealing with the culture. Lord, we thank, we're so thankful for your church and your active obedience, how you fulfilled the law and how you took our, also took our punishment for our sins. Lord, as we depart from here, we look forward to gathering around the table and hearing your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>